Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, however, you are joining us. Uh, we are nearing the uh, end of Advent. Uh, and so let me just invite you again, as Timothy invited, to come to one of our Christmas Eve services, either the 2.30 or the 4 p.m. inside here at our church or outside if weather permits. And obviously we'll be streaming as always. And as Timothy said, I don't know about you, but I am ready. And in need of some celebration, I'm ready to rejoice in the coming of Jesus with all of you this Christmas. And theologian Karl Barth said, what other time of season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? What other time of season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? Bart is saying Advent is the most accurate picture of the human condition. We live in a broken world full of disappointments. While we long and wait for the glory that is to come in Jesus. And living in this in-between is hard. 2020 has been hard. What other time of season will we ever, ever have but that of Advent? We're finishing our series this morning, Come Lord Jesus. We've mostly been in the book of Isaiah. This morning, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, it is our custom to stand, to give attention to the reading of God's word. I'm just going to ask you, if you're able, to stand as I read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 22, a larger portion of scripture this morning. This is God's word to us. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there's no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would speak, that you would speak. Holy Spirit, use your word to penetrate our minds, to soften our hearts, to transform our lives so that we leave here different, renewed, strengthened, to live and to walk with you. I pray that you would remove me, the preacher, so that Christ and Christ alone is experienced and your voice is the voice we hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Fleming Rutledge started out one of her sermons this way. King David, he's got it all. He's a real man's man and a woman's man too. Handsome, glamorous, magnificent in statecraft, a lion on the battlefield, a brilliantly gifted musician and poet, a flamboyantly physical presence, yet deeply introspective and prayerful, a man of action and a man of contemplation, says David. Yet David was a mess and David's family was a mess. And it's in the midst of the mess in the midst of the pain of human life that God makes an unconditional promise to David of an everlasting kingdom. David's life is an Advent life. It is the most accurate picture of the human condition. Though David gifted, successful, David's life was marred by sin and brokenness. And at the same time, he is the recipient of the promise of an eternal and everlasting kingdom. As Christians, this is our reality. Living between the not yet of God's kingdom, still in a world marred by sin, hearts marred by sin, and at the same time, by faith in Christ, we receive the promise of an eternal and everlasting kingdom that is coming. So we're gonna look at David's life in 2 Samuel 7. We're gonna ask God to use his word and David's life to lead us and how to live in the reality of our human condition. We're gonna look at three things the subtle danger to the heart, the sovereign grace of God transforms the heart and sitting before God guards the heart. Let's look first at the subtle danger to the heart. Let me give you a quick recap of David's life up until our passage, very, very general. David at this point has had great success. He's put the Philistines in their place, the Philistines who are opposing God. He has established Jerusalem as the new capital. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God back to Jerusalem. And David is the ruling king here in Jerusalem, six miles from his hometown in Bethlehem, where he once was just a shepherd boy. And after all of his years in the wilderness, David finally has a place to rest. He has a home. In verse one, it says, David was king and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies. And David says to Nathan the prophet, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David says, look at my luxurious home. God needs a home like mine. And Nathan, like any smart pastor would say, if 
someone offered to fund the building program for the church. Go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Bless you, brother, right? But verse four says, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. Nathan goes back to David and puts a halt to this building plan. God's word to David was, you wanna build a house for me? And I'm gonna build a house for you. See, God saw David's proposal in a different light. Catch this, David in the midst of tasting success is subtly shifting from dependence to independence. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, David is about to cross the line from being full of God to full of himself. Outwardly, everything is the same. He isn't conscious of doing anything different, not self-aware of any shift within, but David riding the crest of acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel and Judah, heady with success is now going to do God a favor. There is a subtle danger to all of our hearts as we live in this world. A subtle shift from being dependent on God to becoming independent from God. When things are hard, and 2020 has been hard in many ways, we can lean into God, we can cry out to God, we depend on God. I I don't know about you, but when the first wave of the coronavirus hit back in March and the church had to shut down and we began to reimagine what it meant to be the church in in this moment, I was praying more than ever. When I got the news that my grandmother passed away a few months ago, I was praying more than ever for my family. Our prayer lives and our dependence on God, it's at its height. When we feel out of control, when we realize our need, when things are unknown or scary. And my concern for myself, for you, as 2021 comes around, that things begin to turn the corner. The vaccine is is broadly received. The economy begins to rebound and life returns to some semblance of normal. And we subtly begin to shift into thinking we control our lives. The shift takes place of dependence to independence. Look at David, David is saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for all that you've done. And he's wanting to do something for God, which is quite natural, but he wants to do something for the Lord from a place of independence. As Peterson said, from a place of being full of self. So subtle and yet so dangerous. As a people of faith, there is this danger that can happen that we say, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, when things begin to work out in our favor, but deep down there's something inside the heart that whispers, you did this. You made it happen. You persevered, you worked hard. I mean, why in the world would Nathan, the prophet of God say no to well-intended work for God? Why is Nathan pouring water on this blazing fire within David? because David thinks he's providing and adding to God. i make a, a point here to Christians, to our church as a collective, to myself as one of your pastors. There are times when our grand human plans to do something great for God can turn out to be a huge distraction from what God is doing for us. God does not need us, we need God. 
God is telling David, the kingdom that I am building isn't about what you do for me, but what I do through you. I'm doing the building here, not you. The second thing that we see here is the sovereign grace of God transforms the heart. Joe Novenson is a pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he told the story about a time that he visited India. Joe's guide on his trip was a man named P.T. Chanda, a man Joe described as asking you to imagine Mother Teresa and John Calvin having a child. He said, Chanda possessed maybe four items of clothing, but a profound passion for the gospel. And while there, Joe and Chanda had a very convicting conversation for Joe. Chanda asked Joe to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. And so Joe read, for we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And Chanda stopped him and said, Joe, do you preach Christ? And Joe said, yes, Chanda, I think I do. And Chanda said, well, read the rest of the verse, Joe. So Joe read it, and we preach ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Chanda said, Joe, do you preach yourself as a servant? And he said, no, Chanda, I don't think I do. And Chanda said, well, no one in America wants to be a servant. You all want to be leaders. And you especially don't want to be servants to people like the Corinthians, sexually immoral, bickers. Yet Paul preached himself as a servant. And then he said, let me tell you a secret, Joe. Go to the back of the line. You won't find many Christians in that position. They're all in the front of the line, but you will find Christ there. See, David has placed himself in the front of the line. He was gonna do something great for the Lord. He is very sure of himself, full of himself. And our passage reveals there's at least two reasons David is this way. The first is that David has forgotten where he came from. Look with me in verse eight. It says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people. David was a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. No one in his family even thought he would be considered to be anointed as king, much less become the king. God is saying to David, David, you have forgotten that I got a hold of you. I took you from the pasture. You are king because of me. David, you aren't doing anything for me, but only through me. In ancient times, kings would build their gods huge temples with the hope that their God would establish the king's reign. See, every other religion was about what one could do for their God. And God is telling David, I'm not like those gods. And Christianity is not like other religions. The great theologian, writer, and apologist C.S. Lewis was asked on a radio interview, what makes Christianity different from other religions? And Lewis responded quickly, that's easy. I'll give you one word, grace. It's grace. And, and God is telling David, I'm a God of grace. I brought you from the pasture to the throne. It's my doing. Listen, humility and dependence on grace, it is the starting point for every single person who becomes a Christian. The way one becomes a Christian is by finally getting to the end of their rope seeing their sin, seeing their need for healing and for redemption, seeing their need for a savior and then crying out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's in humility and dependence on grace that every Christian must continue to walk out and live out their faith. Paul says in Colossians 2, for in the same way that you received 
him, received Jesus, so walk in him. If we ever forget grace, if we ever think we graduate from the grace of Jesus onto something more sophisticated, onto something more important to the work of God in this world, we are missing the gospel of Christianity. We must not forget where we have come from. By grace, we have been raised from death to life. David not only forgot where he came from, David also forgot who God was. Look at verse 11. There's this wordplay going on here where David says, God, I'm gonna build you a house. And the Hebrew for house is the word building. And God says, no, no, I'm gonna build you a house. And the Hebrew word for house there is dynasty. God says, David, I'm gonna make you so much more than a building. I'm gonna build a dynasty. I'm gonna build a kingdom and there will be nothing that can break my commitment to you. Look, look with me, verse 12. God says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Death will not stop my promise to you. Verse 14 to 15. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. He's speaking of David's son Solomon here. But he says, my steadfast love will not depart from you. Sin will not stop my promise to you, David. Verse 16, in your house and kingdom, it will be forever and ever and ever. David, time will not stop my promise to you. Neither death nor sin nor time will break my commitment to you. This is sovereign grace. And this is what makes Christianity so beautiful because Christianity is about what God did, is doing and will do. It's about all of God. In some counts, God is the subject of 23 verbs in this passage. The common theme of God's response to David is, I will, I will, I will. It is the sovereign grace of God that transforms the heart. The last thing David teaches us about living in Advent, the reality of our human condition, is that sitting before God guards the heart. Look at verse 18, I love this verse. It says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Eugene Peterson again, he says, this may be the single most critical act David ever did. It is the action that put him out of action. So David here is at his prime, he is ambitious. After God reminds David who David is and who God is, the grace of God transformed David's heart so that David sits. David gets out of the driver's seat and he places himself before his king. David allows God to stop him. Do you know the country code to the United States of America when you're dialing in from another country? Zero, zero, 001, it's the number one. I've always thought that's amusing. In many ways, we've been shaped to believe we're number one, right? Way, way beyond just a country code, not just our country, but individually. It's easy for us to slip into thinking we are the beginning and the center and the end of the world. And what we all need is to be aware that God is the beginning and the center and the end. It's what David needed. And so David sat before God. You hear me, I, I know many of us are doers. I'm a doer. We wanna do things for God, but there are moments far more frequent than we suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. 
This is God's world. (laughs) We've got to stop and sit before God and be reminded he's the beginning and the center and the end, not us. And don't hear me encouraging passivity or sloth as a Christian, because what David did in his sitting was far from passive. It was prayer. What's going on here? David was praying. David entered into the presence of God, became aware of God, traded in his plans for God's plans. He let his enthusiasm to do something for God be replaced with a willingness to give witness to what God was already doing. This is what it means to live faithfully in Advent. We need the grace of God to transform us so that we stop and sit at the feet of our God and we pray. For this is how our hearts are are guarded from shifting from dependence to independence, from full of God to full of self. Let me give you some practical encouragement, some of my favorite things to do around prayer. I love to pray through the Psalms. I mean, the, the, the Psalms are the Israelites' prayer book, right? They're our prayer book. It's, it's a good thing to do to go to the Psalms, pick a Psalm a day, and slowly read and pray through the Psalms. Do the, do the, it's, it's a phenomenal thing to do. It's God's gift to us uh, to have the prayer book of the Psalms. Another thing I do is uh, what's known as the orders of the day. Uh, setting aside particular times of the day, I, I'll do morning, midday, evening. Uh, They don't have to be long times, but set times to kind of demarcate and reorient the heart. So sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're shorter, Uh, but setting aside certain times of the day to to really pray and reorient. I'll use liturgies, uh, old time-tested prayers. You can find some liturgies on our website, on our resources page. Uh, You can use the Book of Common Prayer from the Episcopal Anglican Church. Uh, There's a, a book that I've used called The Divine Hours by Phyllis Tickle. Uh, We use on our staff team a lot, a book called Seeking God's Face, Praying Through the Bible in a Year, Uh, using liturgies as a a way to really develop our prayer life. Another thing I enjoy doing is praying and walking. Uh, I I love to go outside in nature, uh, to behold the theater of God's glory and let God use that to lead me in prayer. Uh, I like to walk through the city. I like to walk through my neighborhood and just kind of pay attention and pray uh, as I walk. I also like to simply pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, the way Jesus taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. So I'll just pray the Lord's Prayer often throughout the day and at different times. Now, those are in no order, and there are many other things that you can do for prayer. I'm just trying to encourage you and give you some practical things uh, for, for your prayer life because it's in prayer that God guards our hearts from becoming independent. It's where we remain dependent on God. And it's where we wait and we trust the unconditional promise of a kingdom that is coming. The promise of an eternal kingdom. It was made to David in spite of himself. It was made to David in spite of his mess and in spite of his shifting heart. It's the good news, church. As we live in Advent, it's in spite of our broken lives, in spite of our shifting hearts and our shattered world that we are recipients of God's promised kingdom come in Jesus. And so when Christmas morning comes and it's coming, let's rejoice and let's celebrate that because of King Jesus, we will inherit an eternal and everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would 
guard our hearts. Even in this year that's been so, so hard, and I pray that we have leaned in and cried out and trusted more as we felt out of control. And, but even in this hard year, we can shift. And within the past week and even this morning, our hearts are so quick to shift. So we need you. We need to hear this gospel declared that you've promised you will, God, you will bring a kingdom because of what Christ has done and will do. I pray you would keep us trusting and dependent upon you. Guard our hearts, we pray. It's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.